St. John's College is the nation's great books college, where graduate students read and discuss the great works of the West or the East, online or in person, in Santa Fe or Annapolis. More at sjc.edu slash podcast. Welcome to the Harper's Podcast. My name is Violet Luca, and I'm the web editor. You've almost certainly given thought to how society will be different once COVID-19 is under control, even though what level of control that can realistically be is still maddeningly unclear. But we must also rethink our relationship with the natural world, because just as our lives have been disrupted by the pandemic, so too have the lives of animals. In the April issue, Lauren Markham examines this subject by writing about a chance encounter between her friends, their dog Mona, and a murder of crows. After the crows saw Mona with a fledgling in her mouth, the birds launched an all-out attack on the family reminiscent of Hitchcock's The Birds. The murder would even menacingly follow them on walks around the neighborhood. To resolve this conflict, which happened only because Mona wasn't indoors during the day, as she was before the pandemic, Markham's friends sought the assistance of a crow whisperer, or what you might call an animal psychic. Despite their incredulity, the crow whisperer helped broker the peace, and the crows, which have the ability not only to recognize people, but to assign them moral qualities and then pass those judgments down to future generations, allowed them to go outside unbothered. I spoke with Markham about how animals live with us, even if they're not pets or pests, and about our collective need to recognize them as more than creatures driven by the need to eat and reproduce. The subjects you touch upon in this piece, the relationship between humans and other animals, and how those have changed during the, and I apologize for using this term, the Anthropocene. <laughs> <laughs> How they seem to shift during COVID uh, could be easily talked about and are often talked about using global frames. And you made a decision to focus on where you live and even your your friends and your own backyard. Did you have that hyper-local approach in mind from the beginning? Yes, I think I did because the thing about what happened in COVID is that while in a global way, one could argue, I think, pretty fairly that everyone on the planet was like more connected than ever, right? Because we're all sort of experiencing the same threat and trying to figure out responses to the, the same problem. Our lives became much smaller, much more local, much more contained, right? For, for me and for many people I knew, and I think for a lot of people than ever. We were in our homes. We were taking walks in our neighborhood. Our ex We no longer went to the gym or to yoga classes. We exercised in our living room. <laughs> like I started picking up my groceries at the store down the street once every three weeks. We got our food via CSA four blocks away. Like my life became, inc- our work happened from my kitchen table. So that local, that, that local frame felt really, really important because that's where we were all noticing the world around us in a way that we really didn't before because we we're always speeding off somewhere else. Yeah, I thought that was one of the most interesting components of the piece is that Yvette Buigues is, you know, she doesn't really see herself as having some magical psychic power. She just says, 
I'm just paying attention. Mm-hmm. It's a very interesting way to think about how when we re-enter or when we are sort of coming back from the lockdowns and the pandemic, how we can interact with the world differently and possibly make it better. Yes, absolutely. One of the only things that animated me, um, it's so funny as we're talking, there's this like amazing bird like right on this little branch right outside my window. <laughs> he knows um, what we're talking like about. Came. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're like, oh, <laughs> I'm flying on him. Um, yeah, I mean, one of the only things that kind of kept me afloat and aloft early on in the pandemic, because I should also say, in addition to just like scrolling the news, I was incredibly sick for the first couple for the first six weeks. There were no tests. I felt like hell. I also work for a public school as an administrator. So most of my days were spent in bed feeling like hell, filing unemployment applications for oh, family geez. after family after family who had lost their jobs because most of our families work in the restaurant industry. So it was like incredibly, incredibly grim, like on a on a Jesus. on a global level as we we're all experiencing. And then with regard to my health and with regard to like my community and the kind of how I was spending my time. But one of the things that was animating and the only kind of hope that I could rest out of that time was, okay, at least if everything's stalling, you know, and has ground to a halt, there might be some way that we can rebuild differently. And sort of all of these systems that are so hulking, you know, I'm working for public education. It's like part of the problem with public education isn't just the will for it to be better, but just like these hulking systems that are difficult to change. It was this feeling of like, oh, we might be able to rebuild our society differently and enter back into that society as different, more conscientious people. I don't know. I'm a little afraid that that isn't necessarily happening. But there are certain things that we are thinking about much differently now than we were a year ago, right? And that isn't just because of COVID. But but the COVID context, I do think, has made us think differently. And, and when I say us, I mean the sort of general body politic um, about issues of equity and issues of race and um, issues of how our systems are set up to benefit some over the other and greed and all of these things. So I don't know. My optimism isn't as like dreamy as it was a year ago. But I still feel it. Yeah, no, it's um, especially when we're haggling over you're gonna get a two thousand dollar check, me. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> That's like, but okay, this is not anyway. And yet, a year ago, to imagine that the government would give anyone just like give anyone money, we would have been like, no way, the right. U.S. government never. <sighs> so I don't know. Yeah, it's a it's a give and take. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, so speaking about the non-telepathic but also maybe telepathic relationship certain people have with animals how many other animal whisperers did you speak to i think i spoke to maybe five or six other animal whisperers and they really ran the gamut of difference i mean one of the things i loved so much about yvette is that like you said she didn't see herself or she she didn't see herself I mean, she absolutely sees herself as an animal whisperer, but Mm -hmm. she's not sort of claiming a particular tradition. She's claiming a skill. She has like a really wonderful sort of sense of humor about it. I mean, she takes it very seriously, but she isn't requiring other people to take it really seriously. And it was just really a delight as someone who's from Northern California. And absolutely, I mean, I have a tarot deck sitting right next to me. Like I absolutely (laughs) traffic in some like stereotypical Northern California woo-woo stuff. It was still like (laughs) such a delight to talk to somebody who... Um, was like, you know, as she says in the piece, I don't know, I'm just an old punk rocker who can talk to the animals, you know, and she just had this like, really not kind of like, breezy, wispy sort of like feels like they could fly away at any moment into the ether personality, like she's kind of rough and tumble in this way that um, I found so lovely and kind of um, out of sync with expectations in a way that was really nice. Absolutely. She's also an artist and her art is very wonderful. Very cool, right? 
Yeah. Yeah, I heard it's so cool. And at one point when Yvette was working with your cat Bodhi, she puts forward the intriguing idea that animals store pain and memories just like we do, that is in parts of the body. Were you able to follow up on this idea at all in your research? Because it, se- it seems to fit with a lot of recent science around how trauma is stored in the body, perhaps you passed on through generation. Yeah, I mean, it absolutely is the case that animals store memory and trauma in their body. And we see that, I mean, you know, my cat, he always shuffles out of the way if someone like steps too hard because like we stepped on him sometimes when he was a kitten because he'd always be underfoot sorry but you know we didn't mean to so it's like just like us you know this reaction you hear a noise when something scary happened and you heard a noise every time after you know you will hear that you hear that noise you will have that that sort of like neural pathway it has has been drawn and that's of course the same for animals one of the things that I talked to a scientist and this is what was so like lovely to me and I, I talk about this in the piece that ultimately the scientist and the animal whispers were not seeing things all that differently. Both scientists and animal whispers were saying, you know, pet psychics, whatever, were saying, look, animals are incredibly communicative. They're incredibly smart. They are um, signaling things, just not through, you know, the English language and, and, and or not through verbiage that, that that is the same as ours. But if we listen to them and if we pay attention, we can understand what they're saying. And they're often saying so much more than we think. And so while the scientists, you know, one scientist told me, yeah, I don't believe in telepathy. That's different than, uh, you know, these other folks sort of sense that they're interpreting something spiritual and they're sort of tapped in on on, on like a, a, a non-ordinary reality plane. It ultimately like doesn't really matter in the sense that they're saying the same things. Animals are incredibly communicative. They store things, they store memories. And that, by the way, is relatively new science. Like until like the 20th century, it was believed that animals were just like programmable robots, like, you know, Pavlov's dogs or like rats in a lab, like teach them Mm -hmm. to do this, like they're cause and effect creatures. The idea that they have sort of like any agency or, or personality or sensibilities of their own is actually relatively new science, which is kind of remarkable. Yeah. And it's one of those things that is supposedly a challenge to this received wisdom about animals, but also we're animals. So why would that not be true? Because again, it's, you know, people, the human tendency to put oneself at the center of the universe and all animals leading up to uh, humanity yes. is is very um, not smart. <laughs> right. Totally. And, you know, you mentioned, I think you were sort of talking about like epigenetics, essentially, right? Yes. I don't, I don't remember. Did you say, yeah. So you mentioned sort of epigenetics and absolutely that is that is the case in animals. I'm doing the story right now about like how trees pass down uh, trauma and memory through well. their acorns. You know, it's like pretty remarkable. Like all beings are passing down information through through genetics. That's about as much of the science that I can explain at this point. Um, but but it's <laughs> pretty amazing. And so, yeah, if, if yeah. trees are doing it, like my cat is definitely also store, storing memory and, and adaptation. Yeah. Yeah. On the issue of animal speak, it's actually been pretty widespread throughout history. And this kind of behavioralist thing is more recent. And yeah. with this emerging science, why are we so hesitant to acknowledge that they do talk and they can communicate more complicated things than me hungry, you know? (laughs) Right, 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 right. Exactly. Well, it's funny because I actually think that like almost anyone who has a pet has experienced something of, you know, at least some 
a fraction at least of what the animal whispers are sort of communicating that it's like, Oh, you know, when my dog looks at me this way, it's, it's this thing, or my dog always seems to know when I'm coming home or, Oh, my cat, when my cat meows this way, it mean they mean this thing or when they meow this way, they mean the other thing or whatever. It's like the sort of feeling of knowing. And I don't know, I think I, I will say this is like mostly just conjecture on my part and kind of opinion. But I think that what, what tends to happen is that we give that communicative ability to and, and, and credence to ourselves with our pets and to our pets in particular, because they're these creatures like living with us. And sometimes I think we even do it with wild animals, like incredible oh, of videos yeah. of a bear doing whatever, you know, like all these like amazing internet videos or like I just owned recently of like a sloth on a boat sort of like dreamily looking at the water. And it's like, <laughs> oh my gosh, the sloth, like what is he thinking in the water? You know, it's like such like a spiritual little video, like this sloth is so tuned in like melania's first tweet (laughs) (laughs) sorry i was sorry i I was you know what is she thinking yes what is she thinking (laughs) i love it but the thing that you know the creatures that i wrote about actually were a lot of the creatures that we tend to think about as these sort of like pesky creatures or and or that we ignore so like rats, crows, backyard birds, like raccoons, like squirrels, or the turkeys, the kind of wild, but they're not even wild, you know, wild turkeys living in downtown Oakland, you know, yeah, creatures that actually have adapted to live side by side us in our cities and that we mostly ignore. But we found out when everyone all of a sudden was home during the pandemic and all the animals started freaking out, they were totally aligned to our patterns, what we did and didn't do where we did and didn't go and when. And that's how, you know, the main conflict I write about in the piece with this crows, it's like, the reason that happened is because the dog was outside because the people were home and the dog got a crow in its mouth, most likely. And that set off this war with the crows. And and it's like the crows are like, why is the dog home? Why are the people home? Why, you know, and the rats were like, why <laughs> right. isn't there food in the dumpsters? The people always put the food in the dumpsters. And it's like, yeah, the restaurants <laughs> are closed. And so I don't think yeah. we think a lot about what the rats are thinking or like what the annoying turkeys who like shit on the the Lake Merritt lawn are thinking. We're mostly like, go away. Don't crap here. Oh my God, it's a rat. (laughs) The crows are being loud today. You know what I mean? I think we consider communication more with our pets than with the kind of animals that are around every day. And that was the thing the pandemic did, especially at the beginning. It made us sort of more aware of what was exactly around us that we normally took for granted or weren't looking at much at all. Right. In your research, how much did the division between pets, aka animals that are okay to have in your house, and the animals that are not okay to have in your house, I mean, how much of that divide is uh, perceptible by animal whisperers? It seems like it would make things worse for human-animal relations. Wait, sorry, what would make things worse for human-animal relations? Like You know, just like you said, where the rats, not okay to have inside the house. Cat, okay to have inside the house. Yes. Yeah, 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 totally. Well, and also a lot of animal whispers, the way that they make their money is most people are not like, hey, can you come talk to this squirrel for me? You know, most people are like, help me figure out why my dog is limping or why my dog gets scared when it rains or I don't know, whatever. Or like I did, this didn't even end up in the piece, I don't think. But we guys told me one time that one person was like, help me find my cat. It's like a one-eyed orange tabby. And a vet like worked on her and she was like, okay, she found a one block radius this is actually kind of wild. She 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 narrowed down a one block radius where this cat was, where she thought she was like, I found this one eyed orange tabby. 
they went to this place, found a one-eyed orange tabby, but it wasn't the tabby. It was a different one-eyed orange tabby, which I just find like so amazing. And she was like, what? Like her, like Whoa. her, like her, like her <laughs> wires got scrambled. She was like, damn it. I found the cat, but not the cat. Um, so most people <laughs> are wondering about their pets. They're not wondering about like the creatures right around them. And, you know, there was a hummingbird's nest in our backyard that I write about and I was completely enamored with it even more enamored with it than I'd ever been with my own pet in a way because I knew eventually it would go away and it wasn't actually like it didn't actually belong to me or it wasn't actually like it it felt ephemeral and so it felt all that much more important Mm. but two months before I would have been like oh cool hummingbird nest I gotta go like I'm getting on a plane I gotta go to work I gotta you know there was something about the like I got to (laughs) see it every day that made me feel so connected to it you saw mother rearing her children. Yes. Like it's, that's yes. a, that's quite, I mean, it's a pretty profound experience. I miss them. <laughs> oh, they're not, they didn't come back. So here's, yeah, they did not come back. Well, the hummingbirds are around here every time. So like all the time. So I see them like every day, which is amazing. So there's still hummingbirds. Of course, I don't know if it is the hummingbirds, but I like to think it's like, you know, mom, big brother, little sister, as we called them. Um, which is like a weird gender binary thing that we did, but that's what we ended up calling them. And um, so I see them all the time and I like project on them that I know who they are, but of course I don't know who they are, but we do not have another nest because an attempt to be like a good steward, we were like, oh, our tree is actually overgrown. We should get it pruned, which was like a very adult thing to do. And I'd never done that before. And it turns out when our tree was incredibly overgrown and when they prune a tree, they basically like take so much of the tree away. So there actually like isn't as much there will like like it's okay, But like this overgrown tree was why they built their nest there. So that was a period of mourning for a while. Like we probably won't have a hummingbird nest, Um, (sighs) but we still have the hummingbirds who come around. And that's nice. That is very nice. And I mean, sort of going back to the divide the pet versus other animal divide, mm-hmm. you know, in you know, with human animal relationships, it's hard not to see commonalities with other relationships between um, someone who has all the power and someone who doesn't. Mm-hmm. Um, the oppressor group kind of gets to pretend that the oppressed doesn't exist or have interiority while the oppressed group has to live in a state of constant alertness uh, like the crows keeping tabs on dangerous humans. Yeah. So yeah. leaving aside the question of psychic ability or not, could direct animal communication be a path out of this cycle? Obviously, that's a it opens larger questions of like, you know, can we end the Anthropocene? Right. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I think absolutely what you're saying is like so lovely and so beautiful, which is that like, why aren't we paying attention to the creatures all around us? And part of that is because we don't have to because there isn't like in most places in the US and especially for urban dwellers i think there is not urban or suburban dwellers like there is not a culture of stewardship or a sense of like responsibility to the sort of like world around you you know and that's true of like your human yeah. neighbors too in a lot of cases it's like i go in my door i do my thing stay out of my life. You do your thing over there. Um, you know, I suppose, and if there's a scream, maybe I'll come help you. But like, there isn't this sense of stewardship. And that's been like this really nice thing. I mean, my backyard, I'm looking at it right now at my window. I mean, it's like, 
I don't even know. I don't even think it's like maybe it's 200 square feet. It's very tiny, but it's like really nice to feel that there's this like little space that I can sort of tend to and make. This sounds so like hippie and absurd, but but I mean it. I feel it like, oh, there are plants that I can make happy. There are like, and birds will come. We have this like tiny little fountain thing and like birds will come and drink out of it. And it totally delights me to be like, I put a fountain and I fill it every couple of days. And the birds come and drink from it and the birds are happy. You know, we have like, we all know about, or many of us know about the like, the monarch butterfly extinction problem. And it's like, sometimes I'll see a monarch like on our plants. And I'm like, yes, like I have a plant, you know? So I think that, that, that part of it is like, I love what you're saying about power and part of, um, and I think you said this, like part of what, um, kind of having, having power means is that you don't that you can ignore the plight or even the existence of the the, the less powerless uh, or the less powerful. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I just think it's like such, such a lovely like call to arms to be like, what if we were paying more attention to the flora and fauna a- around us? Do I think that would like solve the Anthropocene? No, but I do think that there is um, a like a gentleness to that and a sense of responsibility within like inherent within that kind of um that kind of attention or that will come from that kind of attention that I just think will like breed better people and like a better society. I don't know. Absolutely. Again, that's like some real Northern California optimism on a sunny day. (laughs) (laughs) But it's not, but also it's not because, you know, I grew up in a next urban area. Sometimes there were deer there. And they were treated as if they they were invading, right? Yeah, you know, right. because the city is a place for humans and the other place is for the animals. Right. And it's like when you make a yard, as you, or it can be as simple as putting out a bird, bird feeder yeah, or right. uh, water for them, you're kind of returning the space to what it should be naturally. Right. And exactly. again, it, it, and it's just... Um, I mean, and it's hard to do if you're like living in New York and you're living in an apartment. But again, just having that awareness that this is not, you know, our order, which is really hard to do, that our yeah. order is not the actual order of things. Right. And and it's also a gesture of let's share this space, you know, like right. this is shared space and I can do my part to kind of share it with you. Also, I do yeah. know people in New York who, you know, put out birdseed on their fire escape or, you know plant that's anyway, right um, yeah so it's yeah it's it's harder but not impossible no i have a, one of my coworkers uh has some great relationships with cardinal and some <gasps> pigeons because she does you know endeavor yeah. to kind of like put stuff out on the fire escape um and i this sort of goes back to larger questions of how we could possibly i mean when you're thinking about the environment it's really hard to be positive <laughs> but <laughs> Correct. If there was sort of this mass mobilization of, you know, people recognizing that animals feel the exact way that we do or that they, you know, that they're trying to live with us in a way that we're not trying to live with them, would that help, I don't know, um, sort of the, because there's this urgency about climate yeah. change. And if it was presented in a different way, if it was presented like, okay, these animals are trying to live with us, Mm -hmm. they feel the same things we do. Can you stop being uh, an asshole? (laughs) And like, please, please reconsider your fuel sources and that sort of stuff. Do you think that might help change um, the efficacy of climate change initiatives? 
It's such a good question. And, you know, when I'm like wildly unqualified to answer, but I can tell you like my kind of instinct, which is that like part of the problem with climate change and any sort of like large scale societal problem, you know, climate change being a very big one um, that affects or will affect us all is that it becomes an abstraction, you know, like Mm -hmm. it's not an abstraction in Northern California when we can't go outside for a month because it's so smoky, um, we'll get sick. And like on the day when the sun doesn't rise, uh, or it seems like the sun doesn't rise because there's so much smoke in the air, like it's not an abstraction then, but then it becomes an abstraction when that goes away. And so, and, and, and the only time it isn't an abstraction, that is to say, is when it's really locally affecting you. And I do think it's an issue of a couple of things like 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 one the sort of dizziness of the scale of the problem to the sort of abstraction mm-hmm. of the time scale right like ugh, we're talking about 50 years from now 200 years from now that x species isn't going to exist or that this you know the Joshua trees will be gone and it's like that's so horrible and also like what is 100 years I don't I can't you know I can't conceive of that yeah but then third I would say it's also just like a general attitude problem which is like what am I responsible for and to and that's where like you know I don't want to make any sweeping claims but like if we could just speak to the animals around us like climate change would be solved but if more of us had a responsibility for like our immediate area, I do think that that just does engender or like almost like a meditative practice of like, what are we responsible for? What are the values in, in, in our world and in, and in my life? And like, where do I want to put my energy toward? And I do think that like, there can be in that sort of sensibility, like an upward ripple effect that like could Mm -hmm. impact, I mean, not necessarily impact policy, but like impact a, a sense of like urgency or responsibility that is kind of a prerequisite to any policy. Right. Again, you're right. It's an abstraction. People, it's so enormous. People don't want to think about it or can't think about it in a helpful way. And so it's just like, there's a different way to come at the problem that does center you, but in a way that's like, you're part of a larger thing, whether or not you know it, 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 it might I don't know. It could help, but totally. again, it's yeah. it's a very it's it's um might take fifty years to do that. I don't know. Yes, yeah, <laughs> it might yeah. be such a big change, right? But it's like, where is our focus, right? Where is our focus? Where are we focusing? Right. What are the priorities in our world? And that is like, it's it's easier to have a practice for those of us who were not like frontline workers at the beginning. It was easier to kind of cultivate that practice when, you know, I mean until January, I was on a year long tear of being on like five planes a week, you know, fretting about climate change all along, but I was still on five or six planes a week. I mean, that's what I was doing. Yeah. Yeah. And you spoke to several animal whisperers. Yes. What do they make of shows like, you know, Jackson Galaxy or the, the, the dog guy, you know, those sort of reality TV shows? Yeah. Well, one of them Actually, two of them who I spoke to are reality TV show people. Um, oh. And yes, yeah, so Laura Stinchfield, um, she is on, she's like this really sweet kind of kindly animal whisperer person, animal psychic. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she has a show, I believe that's called The Pet Psychic. <laughs> a loaded term. Loaded term. <laughs> she's a pet psychic. And so she goes around and travels, I think mostly through California, her show did that, I think it was on Animal Planet. Um, and she, it would be like, oh, I'm having a problem with my goats. And she'd be like, your goats need something to jump on or whatever. And the guy would be like, oh. and then like they put the thing and like the goat was happier. Um, and I think in her mind, I mean, 
she saw it as kind of like, I don't want to put too many words in her mouth, but I think, and I, and I didn't really ask her too much about like how she conceived of her show, but I think she sees it as like a, a, an educate, of course it's entertainment, but I think she sees it as an educational thing too. It's like, yeah, like what if she's sort of demonstrating that, that if we're listening to animals, they have things to say and things that they desire and we can make their lives better. And then often by extension, our lives better. Uh, right. Cause that's what this whole conflict mediation thing is, is about. Like, like yeah. it wasn't just the crow in my piece. It's not just that the crows were unhappy. It's that like Danny, Adam and their newborn baby could not sit outside you know, in their house. Like yeah. it was not good for any, no one was happy. Like, like any conflict, like it made everyone miserable and there needed to be mediation. And I think, um, you know, on a smaller scale, that's what Laura's Dinfield's doing so yeah i think she saw it more of that her show is like more of an education yeah i mean you know when you're discussing uh your friends uh trying to find answers at first you know there's somebody on reddit told them to leave to, like move oh which multiple, is multiple they, adam was like i found every reddit thread i found like the conclusion was oh you're on the wrong side of the crows like sorry man you gotta move like <sighs> like like more than one and the, and 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 this is really common with any conflict resolution. Like, oh, there's a conflict. I'm going to fight it. So they were banging pots and pans. And the crows are like, ha, 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 ha. <laughs> oh, oh, you want to fight? Like, we we will outlast you. Um, Adam <laughs> went to Facebook and was just like, what do you guys know about crows? I mean, he was like desperately looking everywhere. His mother very funnily is like, try a squirt gun. Or and other people are like, you try throwing things at you. Know, like, like, and it's like none of that stuff worked. Like they needed, they needed a vet. They needed a vet guys to come and, you know. Make things right. Mediate. Yeah, not 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 go on the offensive. But yeah, no, I think that's a really yes, um not go on the offensive. Sal- salient point, I think. We can all learn a little bit from maybe. Yes, yes, yes. But you know, like you were saying with the power thing, it's like, oh, these pesky crows, I'm going to alpha them. Mm-hmm. And the crows are essentially like, uh, we're actually like smarter, have less to lose, and like louder than you. So like no right like we're standing up you know we can fly <laughs> sorry yeah we can fly away <laughs> we can we there are more of us like we hold vendettas across generations <laughs> like we're gonna tell the neighbors like you guys are yeah. fucked and they were <laughs> yeah it's it's you know when you were speaking with dr divall right what i yeah. guess w- yeah when he was did he sort of elaborate the origins of ethology? Yeah, he he talks about it. Um, he talks about it mm-hmm. in his book. So essentially, um, behaviorism is what predated mm-hmm. ethology, which is basically the idea that um, animals are programmed. Mm-hmm. They're they're like computers or like robots. It's like oh you want to teach a, you know, like, like I said before, like Pavlov's dogs are like, okay, if you teach a rat that if they hit this button, they get shocked and they hit this button, they'll get water. They'll hit the water button, you know, um, because they, and they won't hit the shock button anymore. Cause they were t- like, you can program, you know, and which of course is true, but it was thought to, to and mm-hmm. it's the same as humans. If I get shocked by something, I'm never <laughs> going to touch it again. Right. But, and, and so while that is true, that was thought in behaviorism. And this is sort of my crude non-scientific, um, kind of explanation is that it it was thought that that was the sum total of, 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 of animals, that they weren't actually innately intelligent. They had to be taught. They were, they were merely um, programmed by their environment. Right. 
uh, ethology grew out of that um, and, 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 and sort of says, on the contrary, animals are innately intelligent and they have knowledge that, that is not just about like what their environment has, has taught them, but they sort of like have some innate wisdom and intelligence. Yeah. And that, yeah, that emerged in the 1930s. Um, and for Duvall, that was really I- important. And he write, he, he spoke about this with me, um, but he also writes about it in his, I think, just like a totally stunning book called, Are We Smart Enough to Know How Smart Animals Are? And, and he talks about just like as, as, as a student um, feeling like, well, of course, animals are intelligent. Um, of course, there are things that animals know. I mean, and he has unbelievably like beautiful and h- hilarious stories and anecdotes of how, you know, years later, you know, he'll do an experiment with a certain group of monkeys. And then, you know, 10 years later, go and do the same experiment. And the one monkey who is there for the first experiment will like find the thing before the other animals. <laughs> yeah, like the, cl- the cliche sort of thought about animals is that, oh, they have short memories. They forget stuff. And they, they really don't. don't. No, because I everyone's know. like, goldfish Goldfish have a memory of like six seconds. And it's like, right. well, that's right. not. Yeah. Again, I mean, yeah. I think in regards to that, there's a lack of, as is with a lot of things in this country, you know, there's a lack of education mm-hmm. and resources of education put toward mm-hmm. um, understanding biology in that way. And kind of like, yeah. or even right. that biology is you know it's it's taught in like chunks and that it's not like okay so Mm -hmm. here's here's how you know animals relate to their habitat it's like the environmental (laughs) environmental science part and then we move on to the organic chemistry part like it's 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 all kind of like there's no there's no attempt to kind of connect the dots and we have to do that if we have to if we want to continue as a species Yes. And to have any biodiversity on this planet. Yes. <laughs> and, and I mean, I think another thing about ethology is that it's sort of, sh- I mean, I don't know if this is like codified into like the, you know, what ethology, um, how ethology self-defines, but certainly a component that I saw is that like also animals have personalities right. that aren't just functions of, you know, that are, that are like humans, that some combination of nature and nurture that aren't just about like what their environments have programmed them to be. And I remember being a little kid, there's a, um, um, place in Northern California where, where I grew up called Guide Dogs for the Blind. And we got to take a field trip there as kids, which was so cool. Um, and we saw all these little puppies. And what they would do is, you know, these puppies would be born in the shelter. So they all would like effectively have like the same experience, but they would do all these tests on the puppies to see like which dogs would be best equipped to like actually be good guide dogs for the, you know, for people who were seeing impaired. And I remember we like sat there while these puppies were sort of brought out and they would shoot like a fake, like a, what's a, what are those called? Like a cap gun, you know, a really loud, like cap oh, gun yeah, sound. Yeah, yeah. And some of the dogs would be like, doo, 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 no problem. <laughs> and then I remember so clearly this one little puppy, you know, it was like, like it had to be carried off. And oh, it was like, no. so and it's like, okay, yeah, that dog probably isn't going to be, I mean, not that they couldn't be trained, but like that dog, probably a dog that easily spooks like me. And that, that is, that is like, that puppy was like that, you know, what they were basically yeah. saying is like, what are the personalities and which personalities are better suited to this <sighs> job? Not like how, just how do we train? them right of course they had to do an immense amount of training but part of it was like looking at personalities and that's sort of what ethology is saying that it's not just what we can train animals to do but it's who they are yeah you gotta respect (laughs) you gotta you know can't get blood from a stone um 
I guess, uh, <laughs> is there anything else that you wanted to touch on? I don't think so. Other than to say like the anecdotes that I could have given, I mean, my lovely editor, <laughs> Matt Cheryl, who um, just like was so great to work with um, and made this piece um, what it is, is you know, he he had to cut so much stuff because I'd be like, also, jellyfish do this. <laughs> also, this one time, these baboons and like also raccoons and also and also and also, you know, it's like I, there was no limit to like just how touched and moved I was um, by by so many of the stories I read about and heard about, about the way that animals communicate, um, you know, animal. And, and, and I think part of the pro, I guess this is something I want to add. Like part of the thing is that we think of communication, even though humans in our day-to-day interactions are, are communicating non-verbally, like we are communicating so much non-verbally. It's not just the words we say, it's the tone of voice with which we say them. It's the pacing. It's what our body looks like. It's what our face looks like. It's what we're doing while we're doing it. You know, we know all that to be true, but we still tend to kind of privilege the words themselves, which it, you know, when it comes to animals, um, many animals are communicating non-verbally. So for example, there is the octopus, right? Um, Octopi communicate with colors. So not only can they camouflage themselves, they communicate to one another with colors and they can split their body. So on one side, they can be communicating love and lust toward a potential mate and on the other with one color. And on the other side of their body, they can be communicating, uh, you know, back off, stay the fuck away, I'll fight you to like maybe a competing mate, you know, and they can be doing that with color through their body. And so I think part of the thing that animal communication is asking of us is not just like what communication is happening via signal and perhaps even like non-ordinary reality, um, which is, you know, what a lot of the animal whispers sort of feel as though that's the plane and vibe in which they're trafficking. The question is also like, um, and, and, you know, ultimately for the purposes of my piece, it didn't really matter to me, like which one it was is sort of where I came out. Um, but also just like, what are the ways that animals are communicating non-verbally? What are the ways our cats are communicating to us beyond just their meows? Right. You know, what are the ways that um, like our dog's posture or this or that um, it's, it is saying something to us the way, you know, the hummingbird would fly around me. It was trying to communicate something to me. And it was like, all right, let me try to decipher this. Um, it's not with, with human words or even with sound. Right. So. Yeah. Maybe that's the call to arms <laughs> for the end. <laughs> I'll take it. And also, uh, great. <laughs> well, thank you. This was really wonderful. Yay. Thank you. This is so fun. You've been listening to the Harper's Magazine podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Andrew Blevins. The music is Cut and Shoot by Febrifuge. Harper's Magazine is the oldest general interest monthly in America, exploring the issues that drive our national conversation through long-form narrative journalism and essays. To get 12 issues for $21.97, visit harpers.org save. 